0: I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study of the king and his kingdom. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In this section of scripture, uh, Jesus is going to contrast two ways. He's actually got four sets of two. Sorry, I know it's a Sunday. That almost sounds like math. But... Uh, uh, there's four sets of two that he is going to, uh, the, the, he's going to present the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom, particularly who those are to help identify those who are kingdom citizens, who are a part of the kingdom of God. And, uh, and this, this comparison of two different ideas, is a very Jewish way of teaching. Uh, uh, I'm going to by show of hands. how many of you ever seen uh, the movie Fiddler on the Roof? All right, you guys did way better than the, the first service. Uh, for those of you that raised raise your hands I don't want you to feel shame but a little bit uh, you should, really should check that out It's an incredible movie God, when I got married that was one of the first questions uh, I think my wife had wished she had asked me before we got engaged like she was appalled that I had never seen fiddler on the roof or just about any musical for that matter and so we had a the list is still going like that I've still got to catch up on but uh, the, the movie's about a Jewish family in the midst of upheaval and, and culture change. And if you've seen it, you know that Tevye, the father, the patriarch of the family, is really struggling with the changes that are taking place in his family and in the world around him. And there's a scene where his, uh, they had just um, uh, found a match. The, the matchmaker had found a match for their daughter, Seidel. Um, uh, T- uh, and she, uh, she just was not interested in this guy at all. And she had a a guy that they they've been secretly seeing each other. And so the following day they come and and they're going to reveal this to dad. And uh, she said, but we made each other a pledge. And he said, you made each other a pledge. It's unthinkable, unheard of. You just didn't do that. And so he's really wrestling with the, the, the times are changing and that maybe it's okay for his daughter to choose her own husband. But on the other hand, that's not the way we've ever done things before. So there's a scene where he's kind of transported off, to, off in the distance and he's, he's weighing the pros and cons of going her way versus the traditional way. And he'll, he'll say, you know, I, I'm, he's as poor as he could be. But on the other hand, things couldn't get any worse for him. And he goes back and forth that this is true, but on the other hand, this is also true. Well Jesus does that a little bit here in this text, a very Jewish way of communicating, comparing two, two ideas, the comparing and the contrasting. And so the first thing he's going to do is compare the two gates, the two gates. In Matthew chapter seven, in Matthew chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Jesus says, "And again, this is still the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate." For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Here Jesus contrasts two gates and the paths that go along with them. One is narrow, difficult to find, difficult to to walk down that path. The other is wide and it's open and it's easy. And there are many, many come along on that path. Some of you may have been out hiking before, and uh, you're with somebody, and, and you're with one of those people who's, uh, hey, l- let's try this shortcut. I'm sure this will get us there faster, those kind of people. It's, it's usually the husband, right? Let's be honest. <laughs> and 85% of the time, we're wrong. But that 15%, we're like, see, I told you it was shorter. Should have taken this away. I knew it. But you know, sometimes the the path that looks right, the path that looks best, is not the right path at all. And that's the case here. Jesus is giving us this picture. He says the wide one, he says it's easy. There's plenty of room. It's very spacious. In fact, that's what the the Greek word easy means. It's, It's a spacious, a broad, a roomy. There's room for everybody. He says many will find that path. That's the path of this world—that's the path where I get to do what I want to do my way and when I want to, how I want to. Um, that's that's the path that we are we are constantly pushed towards by this world. And frankly, he says many will find that's the path that most people are going down. But he said there's another path—the the narrow path, the narrow gate. He said this is the gate that leads to life. That's a synonym for the kingdom. This is the entrance to the kingdom. This is the only way of entering into the rule and reign of God through this gate. Jesus here is contrasting between two ways of being in this world. The contrast between the saved and the lost. Those who want to go down the easy, wide path, they're the ones who are lost. The ones who go down the narrow path, the difficult path. That's the path to the kingdom, the path to Jesus. But he's... He's not really selling it. He says, This is hard. This is hard. The, the, the Greek word there means to, to press hard, to afflict, to suffer trouble or hardship. The words used in Mark chapter 3, verse 9 of Jesus when he's out uh, uh, trying to uh, get away from the crowds, and uh, he said, um, to have a, He told his disciples to have the boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. It's the same word here that's translated hard in the ESV. It's it's this idea of pressing. You see, Jesus, Jesus made it clear right from day one that following him involves sacrifice. Following him involves suffering. He just said it earlier in this sermon, right after he got done with the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on you. Uh, against you falsely <clears> on <throat> my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Seriously, Jesus, that's your pitch? That's how you're, you're gaining followers? He tells us elsewhere, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he needs to die himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has said that the way to follow him is a way of suffering. It's a way of difficulty. The, the way that leads to life is not easy. When I turn on the TV or anymore, I guess it's more YouTube, and I, and I see a preacher on there, someone proclaiming what, what they would say is the gospel, saying if you come to follow Christ, everything's smooth sailing for you. It's, it's, it's just, you can be you, you can live how you want to be, and, and, and God's going to just give you everything you want He's gonna give you your health, your, he's gonna give you money, he's gonna just, just take care of, you. I mean, he's, you're gonna just be blessed in abundance to where uh, you're not gonna have any needs, any, any difficulties, any struggles, any trials. I, I just feel this like this, this anger that begins to well up in me, because I, I see and hear people that are leading many astray, because that's not the gospel that Jesus presented. Jesus proclaimed a gospel that was difficult to hear. Jesus said things that made people wander away. turn their back and say, I can't do this. There's no way. I'm not willing to make these sacrifices. Remember the rich young ruler? We're going to look at him a few weeks down the road here. He, he said, well, what do I have to do? And Jesus said, go sell all your possessions. And give it to the poor and then follow me. He said, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And he walked away. You see, my brothers and sisters, the Christian life and following Jesus, it can be hard. It involves sacrifice. The paradox, as you read the New Testament, is that even in the midst of that sacrifice and trial, it's infused with joy. That's why Jesus could actually say there, back in chapter 5, rejoice when you suffer for my name's sake. Because in those moments, we're drawn even closer to the Heavenly Father. You see, what we think is is the best way to go, this big, wide path where I can just do whatever I want and live however I want, it seems like, wow, wow, that's the way to happiness, the way to fulfillment, the right way to go. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. When you seek your own kingdom, when you seek your own wishes and will and wants, that's the way that leads to death. It's not the way that leads to him. And he says, this path, it's hard. As Christians, we walk through difficult, difficult trials. And difficult struggles. I mean, everybody in this world, because we live in a sinful world, they, they face trials. I, I think Christians face unique trials because they've chosen... Forsake everything else. And make Jesus the number one priority. That we orient our entire lives around Him. And it gets ridiculed by the world. It looks weird and strange in the world. I made a note here that sometimes we as Christians are accused of being narrow minded. And if by that one means that Christians hold to the objective truth claims of Scripture and maintain that Jesus is the only path to God, then yes. Christians are, in that sense, narrow-minded because that's what Jesus was. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the only path. This narrow path is the one that leads to Jesus. This wide path, all the other, all the other paths flow into the wide path. All the other religions and belief systems of the world, it, it, all, it all filters into this wide path, and it's the path to destruction, Jesus said. Following him, following his word, the path to life. But not only are there two gates, but he mentions two trees. Two trees. This next group pictures, you see each, of, each of these groups of two gives a little bit different nuance on, on people who are in and out of the kingdom of God. And this next group pictures outsiders who are pretending to be on the inside. Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Remember the three little pigs and I think that was one of the, the, the ideas that the wolf had, right, was to dress up, put a disguise on, uh, to fool the pigs into thinking that he was something other than he was. And that's what Jesus said false teachers are. In verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You get the picture there of just, just individuals that are seeking to devour the true sheep. He said, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or fakes from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He's saying that these false teachers, eventually they, they they will give themselves away. Eventually there'll be something, some fruit that you'll be able to see, no, 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 this is a diseased tree. This is, a, this is someone who is leading astray, not a, not a shepherd caring for the flock, not a true believer seeking to walk alongside God's people. They may look for a time like the sheep. They may blend in for a time. But he said eventually their, their lifestyle, their teachings will give them away. He says here, um, he mentions that grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles uh, this is a, one writer said. This is a Semitic way of putting things, both positively and negatively. Uh, it, it makes uh, it, put forth a, it puts forth a test. In Jesus' day, everyone knew that the buckthorn had little black berries, which could be mistaken for grapes at a distance. They, they appeared to be a, a grape, uh, and that was. Uh, and there was a, there was a thistle whose flower, from a distance, might be mistaken for a fig. But no one could, would confuse the buckthorn and the grape once he started to use the fruit to make some wine. No one would be taken in by the thistle flowers when it came to eating figs for supper. Eventually, you'd figure out which was which. Time would tell. Time would, time would reveal what kind of fruit it was. And so it is true of the false prophets. You see, one of the characteristics of prophets in the, uh, false prophets in the Old Testament was their false optimism. You may may remember the time of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel when things were really bleak for Israel. And their message was to come and let them know that they had disobeyed God long enough. And they had heaped up on themselves punishment for their years and and years and generations of wrongdoing. And they came to, to share God's message of judgment. And there were prophets in their day who rose up and said, Oh, don't listen to these gloomy doomsdayers. Don't pay attention to them. They're so mopey and depressing. pay attention to their message. We got a message of happiness, of joy. Everything's going to be just fine. In fact, in in Jeremiah, he, uh, he speaks, in Jeremiah 23, he speaks of these prophets. He said, they're filling you with vain hopes. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, oh, it will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. And so God's words come forth in Jeremiah eight eleven. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The, the message of the false prophet is going to point people away from Jesus, away from sacrifice, away from the narrow path. He said eventually the fruit will reveal what's on the inside. You might be able to see a tree, and from the outside, it may look alive. There may still be some leaves on it. It might, might still look like an okay tree. But eventually, the lack of fruit or the type of fruit it produces will reveal that it's diseased. Eventually, the true heart of the false prophet, the false teacher, will be revealed. It's not always easy to recognize the genuine article by their works. These verses are going to go on to tell us just how important works are. But they can be... Uh, misleading at times. And that's why time and the spirit of God must be our guide in understanding who the true believers are and those who are leading others astray. But he goes on from the two trees and he, he talks about two claims. Two claims. That, that last group pictured outsiders, wolves, that had pretended to be insiders. They came within the church in order to deceive. deceive. But this group here in verses 21 to 23 are those who think they're on the inside. And physically, they are part of the church, part of God's people, but in reality, they're not. And and he says that the first one here, that there will be those in verse 21, and I I think that verses 21 through 23 are maybe the most sobering, gut-punch verses in the entire New Testament. If we will let ourselves sense the gravity of these verses, I believe God's Spirit is gonna speak to us. I'll just read the three verses. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hear what he's saying? This is the first group here, the first claim, is based upon their, their uh, profession or their experience. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a, this is a group of people who they've actually, they've actually called out the name of God. In fact, the repetition of the name Lord, Lord is is another emphasis in the language to just underscore like passion and fervency. This is someone who's recognizing Jesus' lordship. They've they've got some theological knowledge. And they realize he's not just another man, He's, he's Lord. And they've even said the words. These are people who've had some kind of an experience with God. Maybe they had an emotional moment in some service somewhere. Maybe they even prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. Maybe, maybe they, they had this experience that was powerful at one point. But just like in the parable of the soils, that, that experience went away. There was no lasting fruit. These are people that made some kind of a profession, some kind of an expression. Knew something about who Jesus was. But ultimately... Didn't get it. The second group of people here, they're saying, Lord, Lord, also, but they're going to add on to it by the work that they did for Jesus. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in the, in the Greek, you get this reoccurring, it doesn't come across in English, but it says, we prophesied. We casted out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. The we, 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 we did stuff for you, God. They they came to church every Sunday. They gave. They changed poopy diapers in the nursery. They were here before everybody else came Sunday mornings, and they were here long after everyone else left, working, laboring, toiling. Maybe on top of that, they did great things for the poor, involved in ministries outside the church. And notice the words of Jesus in verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. If if those don't stop us dead in our tracks, I don't know what words of Jesus will. He's not talking about people that fell away. He's not talking about people that wandered into awful, gross immorality and sin. These were people who worked for Jesus. And he didn't say, I forgot about you or, you know, I knew you one time and I don't know you now. He said, I never knew you see, the problem was that with both of these individuals, the person who had that that superficial experience, or maybe even some kind of a powerful experience, and these people who have worked for Jesus, you know what the problem was? That they never actually really knew Jesus. You see, you and I, we can do lots of things for Jesus. We can work for Jesus. We can come and, and we can even pray and cry out to Jesus. But unless we have a saving relationship with him, unless, like the words of Jesus, we've chosen to follow him, we put our faith and trust in him and him alone. And become his children. We're just playing games. We're just going through the motions. Dean and Sarah has, has, has written a book called Unsaved Christians, in which he he reminds us that so many of us come to church Sunday morning and yet there's no true, real relationship with Jesus Christ in our hearts. And he came up with a, a list of some things that we might say today. That these, in verse 22, talked about prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works. Maybe we would add to that list today. Didn't we say grace before dinner, Jesus? Didn't we vote our values? Didn't we believe prayer should be allowed in school? Didn't we go to church? Don't we believe in God? Didn't we get misty-eyed whenever we heard God Bless America sung at a baseball game? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we treat women with respect? Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we work to improve race relations? Didn't we get the baby christened by the priests? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and faithful? Most of those things are very, very great virtues. But if that's what we're leading with, if we think that's what we're going to be able to do to get God to accept us, we are sadly mistaken, and we will hear those haunting words of Jesus. Depart from me, I never knew you. Good works are absolutely crucial to our walk with Christ. Jesus is going to, he repeats it over and over and over again. Even in this passage. We can't get the cart before the horse. Good works flow out of our relationship with Jesus. Being already accepted by Jesus. By trusting him as our savior and him alone. Realizing that it's only his merit that can make us right before God. He's the one who saves. As we trust in Him. And when we do so, good works should flow out of that. I don't do good things so that I will be accepted by God. We're to do good things because we've been accepted by God. Those are two very different prepositions. The, 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 the wording is absolutely essential because if you and I think that by our good works and our faithfulness, we will be welcome into the kingdom we are sadly mistaken. We will hear these words that these men and, heard, men and women heard, depart from me, I never knew you. But when we trust in Jesus and in him alone as our Savior, not relying on anything we do, but on his finished work, we'll come before him and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. Charles Spurgeon has said, many a good man in his own esteem has been a very devil in God's eyes. Many a pious soul in the esteem of the church has been nothing but rottenness in the esteem of God. We can think ourselves very good, very well behaved, very moral and righteous people. But in the eyes of God, if that's the righteousness, if that's, that's the offering we're bringing, God says, I can't accept that. It doesn't, doesn't meet the requirements of a holy God. Only when we come to him with nothing in our hands can we be accepted by him. But Jesus finishes with good news because he contrasts two foundations. This final group speaks of those who hear Jesus' words, us. He does say that there will be some who respond to him in obedience and trust. And there will be others who don't. He paints a picture of two houses that are built on a foundation. And he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, verse 24, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. One translation says it it collapsed with a great crash. When we build our foundation, when we build our house on the wrong foundation, it changes everything. These two houses probably look beautiful. They probably look gorgeous. The, the exteriors, the windows, the, the gardens, the picket fence. Probably everything from the outside looked perfect. And That's what I think Jesus is saying over and over again in this passage. From the outside, we can look like we've got it all together. We can look like we're following Jesus. But what's inside will eventually come out. And he said this house that was built on the sandy foundation, it got pummeled by storms and winds and rains and eventually the foundation eroded and the house began to shift and split apart and eventually it just completely crumbled because it was built on the wrong foundation when we choose to build our life on our way of living our ideas our works we're building on the wrong foundation and eventually i mean the house could look good for a long time I was at West Michigan on the Lake Michigan Lakeshore this summer, and there's houses that have been standing there for a very, very long time. But this year, with the high waters and the extra storms, we were going for a walk along the beach, and and we saw people's yards falling into Lake Michigan as 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 the place was eroding right there before our eyes. Eventually, it will come out if we've built our houses on the wrong foundation. But Jesus said, rather still build our house on the rock, build on a firm foundation upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, upon his righteousness, his work upon the cross, so that in that final day, we can be welcomed into his kingdom because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we've done. Works are very prevalent throughout this passage. Verse 24 says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, we don't do those works to get saved. We do those works because we've been saved. One writer says, It's true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It's true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. That's where the works come in. See, on the surface, the two often look the same. Both these trees looked healthy. Both these people, in verses 21 through 23, they worked for Jesus. Both houses looked sound and beautiful. The difference between being saved by our own merit versus being saved by the grace of God Couldn't be further. This is not about bad people versus good people. It's about those who think they can save themselves versus those who know only Jesus can do it. Every person in this world, each and every one of us, is born thinking we have what it takes to earn our way to God. If I just give God my very best effort, then he'll do stuff for me. But the gospel has a different message. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this. You bring nothing of worth, but how about this? Through faith, I'll give you Jesus' perfect record. It's yours if you believe. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to impress me to get it. You just have to believe. And then you're totally accepted by me. You're my child. You're my treasure. You're welcomed into the kingdom if you'll accept this by faith. You see, on the surface, both these people look the same. The one who's trying to merit God's favor and the one who's received it by faith and is living a life of obedience. Both are doing good stuff for Jesus. But the one is because they're trying to get something from him and the other is because they've already got life. It's the root. It's the foundation. It's what's inside. The true child of God is resting upon Christ. In Christ alone. How about you this morning? Which path are you walking down? Have you consciously chosen the narrow path to follow Jesus? No matter what trials may come. No matter how you're ridiculed at work. No matter what you have to give up. No matter what you have to forsake. Are you taking the wide path? Where you're just, I'm just going to do whatever I want. What seems easy. What comes natural. And I'll take care of all that Jesus stuff at the end of my life. Or even worse yet, are you trying to walk down both paths? Are you looking to God and God alone for your acceptance before him for what Jesus has done on the cross and dying for you and rising again and paying for your sins and and knowing that through faith you can have eternal life and in him and him alone? Are you trying to bring God your very best? putting forth your very best effort, working yourself to the bone, to exhaustion, so that he might accept you. I pray that you would rest in Jesus' finished work. Trust him. John Newton, the great 18th century hymn writer and pastor, former slave trader, captured it perfectly when he said, if ever I reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And the third, the, the, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. That's the broken, repentant, humble sinner before God, resting on him and him alone. I pray that that's you this morning. But if, 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 if we've been studying God's word and as you've been hearing the scriptures, if you thought, I, I am going down that wide path, I am that person who's cried out, Lord, Lord, or I've been working for Jesus, but never trusting him. I'll let him. Letting him truly be Lord of my life. We'd love to talk to you this morning. As our worship team plays, I'd love to come up and have you come up and, and pray together. This is a matter of life and death. This is eternity right here. This is the gospel versus unbelief. Jesus longs, he calls for us to enter that narrow gate and to choose the hard path and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we, we hear hard words from Jesus. These words are, are fraught with they can, they can bring terror, they can bring fear for those who are trying to earn our way to you, to to somehow gain your favor by our works, to live life on our terms. God, sometimes we need to be shaken. We need to be be grabbed a hold of and looked in the eyes. Are you paying attention? Are you getting it? And this passage does that to us. Lord God, I pray this morning that, that we're searching our hearts, each and every one of us, To see and ask you what path we're traveling on. To ask ourselves, why should Jesus accept us? Is it because of what I've done or because I'm trusting in what Jesus has done? Am I truly resting in him? In what he has done day by day, moment by moment. Heavenly Father, do you stir our hearts to respond to your word this morning? May the words of Jesus linger in our minds. God, it's not my intent to, to put unnecessary fear in the hearts and unnecessary doubt in our, in our hearts. But if this warning from our Savior jolts even one person to get off the wide path and onto the narrow, then we will rejoice. With great joy this morning. We love you, God. We thank you for your spirit. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.